This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. This is Case Closed, back with another 60 minutes of crime stories from the golden age of radio, as we do every Wednesday at relicradio.com. We begin with Sherlock Holmes this week, and hear his episode from May 6th, 1946, titled The Man with the Twisted Lip. After that, it's Somebody Knows and the Gladys Kern Murder. That episode aired July 6th, 1950. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend at Master Detective Sherlock Holmes. Before he starts, I can tell you something that's really worth knowing. Simply this. The best beginning a good meal ever had is a glass of Petri California Sherry. Petri Sherry is the perfect before-dinner wine. While you're waiting for dinner to be put on the table, pour yourself a glass of that clear, amber-colored Petri Sherry. Now, just sit back and sip it slowly. Take your time so you can thoroughly enjoy every single drop of that wonderful Petri flavor. And what a flavor that Sherry has. It comes right from the sun-ripened heart of wonderful California grapes. You may be a real wine expert and know all about sherry wine, but believe me, until you've tried a Petri sherry, you're really missing something. Serve Petri sherry alone or serve it with canapes or appetizers. And by all means, serve it proudly. You can because the letters P-E-T-R-I spell the proudest name in the history of American wines. Petri. And now let's visit our good friend and host, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Drop your usual chair, make yourself at home. How about a glass of sherry? That'd be very nice. Uh, all ready for tonight's story, Doctor? Yes, my boy. Uh, Here's your sherry. Thank you, sir. My story begins on a June night in 1889. My wife and I had spent a quiet evening at home, I remember. It was just about the hour that a man gives his first yawn and glances at the clock, when the tranquility of the scene was broken by the discordant jangling of our front doorbell. An emergency call for you, I suppose, Doctor. Not exactly, Mr. Bartell. It turned out to be a certain Mrs. Isa Whitney, an old friend of my wife's who'd come to us in trouble. Her husband, she told us, had been missing for 48 hours and, knowing him to be the victim of the shocking habit of taking opium, she was convinced that he was lying drugged and stupefied in some foul den amid the London waterfronts. And I suppose you went out to try to find him? Yes, Mr. Bartell, I did. She told me that her husband had mentioned frequenting a place called the Bar of Gold in Upper Swandham Lane, so naturally that's where I began my search. I quickly located it, and after ordering my cab to wait, I entered the place. A strange sight met my eyes. Through the smoke-ridden gloom, I could catch a glimpse of bodies lying in strange, fantastic poses as they smoked the pipes of death. Most of the unhappy creatures lay silently, but some muttered to themselves and others talked together in strange, low, monotonous voices, their conversation coming in gushes and then trailing off into silence, each mumbling his own thoughts and paying little attention or heed to the words of his neighbor. As I entered, an attendant hurried up to me with an opium pipe and a supply of the drug and beckoned me to an empty berth. Master may lie here. I haven't come to stay here, my good man. I'm looking for a friend, Mr. Isa Whitney. No one by that name here, Master. Well, I'm going to search this place just the same. Please not to make trouble, Master. Watson. Is that you, Watson? Whitney, thank heavens I've found you, man. What time is it? It's nearly 11. What day? What day? Friday, June the 19th. Good Lord, I thought it was Wednesday. It is Wednesday. You're trying to confuse me. I tell you, it's Friday. Your wife has been waiting two days for you. You're mixed up in your dates, Watson. I've only been here a few hours. Three pipes, four pipes. I forget how many. I'll go home with you. Here, I'll I'll give you a hand. That's it. I have a cab waiting. I must owe some money. Will you settle up for yes, me, Watson? Yes, of course. Here, wait here for me. 
Stop calling it my Steve, my good fellow. Who are you and uh, what do you want? A word in your ear, please. Oh, very well. What, what is it? Get rid of your friend and join me outside. Holmes, what on earth are you doing here in this den? Are you a cab waiting? Yes. Then please use it to send your befuddled friend home in. And if you feel up to it, I should also recommend that you send a note to the cabman telling your wife that you have thrown in your lot with me. I'd be exceedingly glad to have a little talk with you. Yes, of course, Holmes. Splendid. Then conclude your business here, old chap. I'll meet you outside in about ten minutes. Nearly. Is that you, Holmes? Yes, Watson, it's me. Your disguise is wonderful. I've never recognized you if you haven't spoke to me just now. Disposed of your friend? Yes, yes, close. Splendid. Let's start walking. I have a horse and trap waiting for me in the next street. Oh, what on earth were you doing in the bar of gold, Holmes? Trying to get news of a missing man. You, Simon, I'm in the midst of a very remarkable inquiry. And I'd hope to get a clue from the incoherent ramblings of those poor devils back there. Ah, there's the horse and trap. Under the street lamp on the corner. You'll come with me, Watson. Yes, of course, if I can be of any use. A trusty comrade is always of use. My room at the Cedars has two beds in it. The Cedars? Yes, that's Mr. Neville St. Clair's house and our present destination. It's near Lee in Kent, about seven miles from here. I'm using it as a headquarters while I conduct my inquiries. Evening, Mr. Holmes. Everything all right? Yes, thank you, John. I... Get in, Watson. Right, John. I shan't need you anymore tonight, John. Here's half a crown for you. Look out for me tomorrow, about 11. Right you are, Mr. Holmes. Good night, gentlemen. Good night, John. Go on, get up. Well, Holmes, if we have a seven-mile drive ahead of us, perhaps you'll tell me about the case that you're working on. With pleasure, old chap. But first, take the reins for a few minutes, will you? I uh, want to remove my makeup and take off my wig and be comfortable. After that, I'll tell you why we are headed for the Kentish countryside at this hour of the night. You have a grand gift of silence. It makes you invaluable as a companion. We've driven four miles and you haven't uttered a word. <laughs> it wasn't easy, Holmes. I've been dying to question you, but I could see that you were preoccupied. Then I shall reward you with a clear and concise statement of my problem. Mr. Neville St. Clair, aged 37, the father of two children and an affectionate husband, is missing. He left his house, the Cedars, near Lee, our present destination, last Monday. Four days ago, eh? Yes. Now, why should an affectionate husband and a happy father disappear? Any any money trouble? No, I think not. His entire debts uh, at the moment amount to 88 pounds, while he has 220 pounds standing to his credit at the Capital and Counties Bank. Who was the last person to see him on Monday? His wife. But let me tell you the story. He left his house for London rather earlier than usual. He was a businessman, then? Uh, yes, he has... An interest in several companies in London, uh, but his wife doesn't know exactly what he does. But to continue, he left for London saying that he would bring his little boy home a box of toy bricks. Now, by the merest chance, his wife received a telegram shortly after his departure saying that a parcel of considerable value was waiting for her at the offices of the Aberdeen Shipping Company. Aberdeen Shipping Company? Why, their offices are in Fresno Street. I drove by them tonight. Exactly. And Fresno Street branches out of Upper Swandham Lane, where the Bar of Gold is situated. Ah, oh, now I'm beginning to understand. Go on, Holmes. Go on. And Mrs. St. Clair took a train for London, and at exactly 4.35 on Monday last, found herself walking past the Bar of Gold. Suddenly, she heard a cry and... Looking up, was horrified to see her husband beckoning to her from a second-story window. Wait, Scott, was he a prisoner, or was he there of his own free will, do you suppose? Undoubtedly, he was a prisoner. The window was open, and she distinctly saw his face, which she described as being terribly agitated. Really? He waved his hand to her frantically and then vanished from the window so suddenly that it seemed to her that he had been dragged back by some irresistible force from behind. One singular point which struck her quick feminine eye was that although he wore the coat he had left for London in, he wore neither collar nor tie. Well, what did she do? Rushed down the steps into the bar of gold and attempted to go up the staircase leading to the second floor. I suppose that oriental fellow that I talked to tonight stopped her. Exactly. In fact, he pushed her out of the door and slammed it after her. 
She rushed down the lane and a few moments later was lucky enough to meet a sergeant and two constables. She took them back with her to the bar of gold, of course. Yes. They went with her to the room in which Neville St. Clair had last been seen. Of course, there was no sign of him. In fact, on the whole floor, there was no one to be found except a hideous, deformed beggar who seemed to live there. From what Mrs. St. Clair told me, it appears that the sergeant conducted the examination quite intelligently. Your husband at this window, Mrs. Sinclair? I'm positive, Sergeant. And the Alaska swears no one's been upstairs this afternoon. Well, he's probably lying. But let's see what this cripple fellow has to say for himself. Here, you. <laughs> what do you want with me? I ain't done nothing. Now, you heard what this lady said. Did you see your husband go in this room a few minutes ago? I didn't see nobody, and I've been here all the afternoon. You live here? Yes. And you swear on oath that no one's been in this room for the last few hours? Yes, I do. Mrs. Sinclair. I know that you think you saw your husband, but don't you suppose... Look! Look on the table! Just a wooden box, ma'am. But I know what's inside it. There, see? Oh, it's a lot of, lot of wooden bricks like kids' play. My husband came to London today especially to buy them for our son. You can't disbelieve me now, Sergeant. Don't think I can, ma'am. I'll take another look round. Where does this door lead to? My bedroom. You won't find nothing in there. Oh, we'll look just the same. Oh, there's bloodstains on this window ledge. Fresh bloodstains. How do you account for that? Well, I don't know nothing about it. And the window overlooks the river, just where the water's good and deep, too. Nice place to tip a body out. Here, come here, you. Yeah, I ain't done nothing. You've got bloodstains on your right sleeve. What do you got to say about that? Well, I cut my finger, see? And then I went and opened the window letter. That's how the blood got there. Did you think I was born yesterday? Let's have a look in this chest of drawers. Hello, whose clothes are these? A pair of trousers, socks, shoes, hat, everything except the coat, eh? Uh, Mrs. Sinclair, will you come in here, please, Mum? What have you found, Sergeant? These clothes. Are they your husband's, Mum? Yes. Yes, they are. What's happened to him, Sergeant? I'm afraid he's met with foul play, Mum. And this man knows what happened, only he won't talk. I don't know nothing, I tell you. No, don't you? Well, I arrest you in the name of the law, and I warn you that anything you say... And so, Watson, the sergeant arrested this crippled beggar. No, I'm not surprised. What have they been able to find out about him? Surprisingly little. His name is Hugh Boone. And he's a professional beggar, quite a successful one, I gather. His pathetic appearance attracts great sympathy. There's a shock of orange hair and a pale face that is disfigured by a horrible scar which has twisted the outer edge of his upper lip. And he was the last man to see Neville Sinclair alive, eh? So it would seem. The Lasker downstairs has been cross-examined relentlessly, but he swears that he has no knowledge of the crime. Have there been any, any further development? Oh, yes, old chap. Yes, huh? indeed there have. The ebbing tide gave a fresh clue. You mean Sinclair's body was washed up? No, his coat. What? With every pocket stuffed with pennies and halfpennies, 421 pennies and 270 halfpennies, to be exact. There's no wonder that it had not been swept away by the tide. But a human body was a different matter. Yes, there's a strong eddy between the house and the wharf. It seems likely that the weighted coat had remained when the stripped body had been carried away into the river. Well, the other clothes were found in the room. Why would the body be dressed in a, in a coat alone? We can only surmise, old chap, but uh, supposing that this man Boone... I thrust Neville Sinclair through the window and into the river. What would he do then? Try and dispose of the telltale garments. Yes, that would be logical, wouldn't it? He would seize the coat and be in the act of throwing it out of the window when it would occur to him that it would float and not sink. So he loaded the pockets with coins to make it sink. Quite so. Yes, of course. But uh, he has little time, for he has heard the scuffle downstairs when Mrs. Sinclair tried to force her way up. He only succeeded in getting as far as throwing the coat out when the police arrived on the scene. Well, that seems perfectly feasible. Well, it'll do as a working hypothesis anyway. Neville Sinclair disappeared on Monday, and yet we still don't know what, what he was doing in the opium den. What happened to him when he was got there, or, or where he is now? Oh, what Hugh Boone, the beggar with a twisted lip, had to do with his disappearance. Now, here we are at our destination. Oh, there's a light burning. Mrs. Sinclair must be waiting up for you. Yes, poor woman. I hate to return here with no news of her husband. But she's being brave, Watson, extremely brave. We must do everything we can to comfort her.
Mr. Watson, I'm so grateful that you were able to come down and help your friend. Oh, I only hope that I can be of some help, Mrs. Sinclair. I see that you have no good news for me, Mr. Holmes. I'm afraid not. No bad? No. Thank heaven for that. Mr. Holmes, tell me honestly. Do you think that Neville is still alive? Well, I... Frankly, no. Frankly, then, I don't. You think he's murdered? Oh, I don't say that, but perhaps you And on what day did he meet his death? On Monday. Then perhaps, Mr. Holmes, you can explain how I received a letter from him today. What? Where is the letter, madam? Here. Here. Let me see it. This is very crude writing on the envelope. Surely it's not your husband's hand. No, but the writing in the letter is. Uh Uh-huh. This letter contained an enclosure. Yes, there was a ring. His signet ring. What does the letter say, Holmes? Dearest, do not be frightened. All will come well. There is a huge error which it may take some little time to rectify, waiting patience. And it's signed Neville. Mm-hmm. Written in pencil on the flyleaf of a notebook. No watermark. Posted today in Gravesend by a man with a dirty thumb. Mm-hmm. And the flap has been gummed, if I'm not mistaken, by a man who has been chewing tobacco. My husband must be alive, Mr. Holmes. This might be a clever forgery to put us off put us off the track. But the signet ring. Yes, it may have been taken from him. But the handwriting and, and then the postmark. Might have been written on Monday and only posted today. I won't be discouraged, Mr. Holmes. Mr. St. Clair, I have no wish to discourage you. I'm just trying to be practical. If your husband is alive and able to write letters, why should he remain away from you? I, I can't imagine. He made no special remarks before leaving on Monday? No, none. Except to say that he was going to buy the wooden blocks. When you saw him at the Bar of Gold in Swandham Lane, was the window open? Yes. Then he might have called you. He might. As I understand it, he gave an inarticulate cry, a call for help, you thought. Yes, he waved his hands. But it might have been a cry of surprise. Astonishment at the unexpected sight of you might have caused him to throw up his hands. I suppose so. And you thought that he was pulled back from the window. Yes, because he disappeared so abruptly. He might have leaped back, mightn't he? He might have, though I can't think why. One last question. Had your husband ever shown signs of, uh, uh, taking opium? Why, no, never, Mr. Holmes. I'm certain the idea would have revolted him. Thank you, Mrs. Sinclair. Those were the principal points I wanted to be clear on. And now, Watson, I suggest we retire for the night. We may have a busy day ahead of us tomorrow. I hope you both sleep well. Good night, Mr. Holmes. Dr. Watson. Good night, Mrs. Sinclair, and keep up your courage. Good night, Mrs. Sinclair. We must hope for the best. The clouds seem lighter, though I should not venture to say that danger is over. You'll hear the rest of Dr. Watson's story in just a second. So I'm just going to remind you that when you buy Petri California sherry, you have a choice of two kinds of sherry. You can choose Petri regular sherry... Or, if you prefer your sherry dry, you know, not sweet, ask for Petri Pale Dry Sherry. They're both fine wines. And if you don't know which you'd prefer, don't buy one, buy two. Buy them both and try them both. And remember this, Petri Sherry is the perfect all-round, all-occasion wine. It's good before dinner, after dinner, at cocktail time, and any time. Just be sure you get Petri. Petri Sherry. Well, Dr. Watson, you and the great Sherlock Holmes certainly deserved a good night's rest. Did you get it? I did, Mr. Bartell, but Holmes made no attempt to sleep. As soon as we retired upstairs, he donned a blue silk dressing gown and then wandered about the room collecting pillows from his bed and cushions from the sofa and the armchairs. With these, he constructed a sort of eastern divan on which he perched himself cross-legged with an ounce of shag tobacco and a box of matches laid out in front of him. He was all set for a session of thinking, I guess, huh? Yes, my boy. In the dim light of the lamp, I saw him sitting there, an old briar pipe clenched in his teeth, his eyes fixed vacantly on a corner of the ceiling, the blue smoke curling up from him, silent, motionless. So he sat as I dropped off to sleep, and so he sat when I wakened in the morning to find the summer sun shining into the room. The pipe was still between his lips, the smoke still curled upward, and the room was full of a dense tobacco haze. But nothing remained of the heap of shag which I'd seen on the previous night. Watson. Wake, Watson. Uh, What time is it? Uh, Twenty minutes uh, past four. Lord Holmes, you 
You're a bit of bed. Too old chap, I had to think. I couldn't allow my brain the luxury of sleeping. You game for a morning drive? Yes, certainly. I'll, I'll get rest. Good. <laughs> well, I'm stirring yet, but I know where the stable boy sleeps. I'll have the horse and trap up in no time at all. Oh, where are we going? To prison. To visit Hugh Boone, the man with the twisted lip. Holmes, you're, you're unusually excited. What, what's, what's on your mind? I want to test a little theory. I think, Watson, that you are now standing in the presence of one of the most absolute fools in Europe. I deserve to be kicked from here to Charing Cross, but I think I have the key to the affair now. Oh, where is it? In the bathroom. What? You're joking, Holmes. No, I've just been there and removed it. It's in my coat pocket now. I can get dressed, old chap. And we'll drive over to the prison and see whether my key fits the lock. Good morning, Mr. Holmes. Dr. Watson. Good morning, officer. Good morning. morning. You're a couple of early birds, and no mistake. Yes, Constable. We are searching for the proverbial worm. Who's on duty? Inspector Bradstreet, sir. Oh. Oh, here he is now. Good morning, Bradstreet. Oh, hello, Mr. Holmes. Good morning, Doctor. Uh, Good morning, Inspector. What can I do for you, gentlemen? We called about Hugh Boone, the beggar man who... uh, is charged with being concerned in the disappearance of Mr. Neville St. Clair. You have him here? Oh, yes, Mr. Holmes. He's in the cells. I'll take you to him. Uh, follow me, will you, gentlemen? Thank you. Well, what, uh, what kind of a prisoner has he been, Inspector? Oh, he hasn't given us any trouble, but he's a dirty devil. It's as much as we can do to make him wash his hands. His face is as black as a tinker's. So he has an aversion to washing, has he? Yeah, yes, Mr. Holmes. Well, once his case has been settled, he'll have a regular prison bath, and when you see him, I think you'll agree with me that he needs it. Well, there we are. Uh, this is his cell. He's still asleep. Good Lord, what a, what a filthy, repulsive-looking fellow. Yes, he's a beauty, isn't he? Hmm. Uh, want to go in, Mr. Holmes? Please, Inspector. Oh. Well, he, he certainly needs a wash. Yes, I had an idea that he might. That's why I brought this sponge along in my pocket. Oh, so that was the key that you found in the bathroom. Oh, you're a funny one, Mr. Holmes, and no mistake... What did you bring a sponge along for? I'll show you. Is there any water in this cell? Hey, in the jug on the table oh, yes, there. Yes, yes, I soaked the sponge in the water so, and then applied to the prisoner's face so. Great Scott, his complexion's three shades lighter underneath, uh, and the scar on his lip has disappeared. Well, what are you doing to me? Now a tug on this mop of red hair, and I think we'll find it's a wig. Yes, come on. That's right. Ah, let me introduce you to Mr. Neville St. Clair... Of Lee in the county of Kent. Good Lord, Mr. Holmes, is the missing man all right? I recognize him from the photographs. All right. I'm Neville Sinclair. What am I charged with? With making away with Mr. Neville say... Oh, <laughs> no, you, you can't be charged with that unless we make a case of attempted suicide of it. Well, since I'm the missing man, then it's obvious that no crime has been committed and therefore I'm illegally detained. No crime, but a very great error has been committed. You would have done better to have trusted your wife. It wasn't only my wife, it was the children. I I couldn't bear to have them know that their father was a common beggar. Now you've exposed me. What could I do? Well, if you leave it to a court of law to clear this matter up, sir, you can hardly avoid newspaper publicity. But if you're perfectly honest with us now, I'm sure that the inspector and Mr. Holmes won't be too hard on you. No, Mr. St. Clair. Inspector Bradstreet will, I'm sure, make notes on the information that you give us and submit them to the proper authorities. But now, sir, your story, please. Why have you been posing as Hugh Boone, a crippled beggar with a twisted lip? Well, it's... uh... Simple enough story. Some years ago, I was a newspaper reporter. One day, my editor wanted an article on begging in the London metropolis. I suppose you thought the best way to get your facts was to disguise yourself as a beggar. Yes, I'd I'd been an actor in my youth, and it wasn't hard for me to adopt a convincing disguise. But that was the point where all my troubles started. On that first day, I sat in the London streets... I found to my amazement that I received no less than 26 shillings and fourpence. Almost as much as your weekly salary as a reporter, I imagine. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Well, you can imagine how hard it was to settle down to arduous work at two pounds a week when I knew that I could earn as much in a couple of days by smearing my face with paint, laying my cap on the ground and sitting still. Only 
One man knew my secret. Alaska at the Bar of Golden, up a Swandom Lane, eh? Yes, Mr. Holmes. Mm-hmm. Every morning I would emerge from there dressed as a beggar. And in the evenings I'd return and transform myself into a well-dressed man about town. The uh, fellow was well paid for his rooms and... Well, I knew that my secret was safe in his possession. When you got married, you couldn't bring yourself to confide in your wife, I suppose. No, I, I couldn't. My wife knew that I had a business in the city. She little knew what. When you saw your wife from the window last Monday, you quickly changed back into the character of the beggar, I suppose. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Of course. And then weighted my coat and threw it into the river. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think there's anything else I need explain, is there, gentlemen? One point. The signet ring that you sent your wife. Well, I, I knew that she'd be worrying. So I gave it to the Lasker at a moment when no constable was watching me, together with a hastily scribbled note. That note only reached her last night, Mr. Sinclair. Last night? Oh, poor Catherine... What a dreadful week she must have spent. Uh, the police have been watching that, Lasker. He probably found it difficult to post the letter for you without being spotted. Yes, I would surmise he gave it to a, a sailor customer of his to post. A sailor who chewed tobacco and had a dirty thumb. Hmm? Yes, I think all the ends are tied off very neatly now. One last question, Mr. Sinclair. Have you ever been prosecuted for begging? Oh, many times, but what was a fine to me? It's got to stop here and now, Mr. Sinclair. If the police had asked this thing up, there must be no more of you, Boone, the beggar. I swear it. And you must tell your wife the truth at once. If you'd done that a long time ago, you'd have saved both of yourselves a very great deal of misery. Sir. I shall tell her everything. Well, Mr. Holmes, we're very much obliged to you for having cleared this matter up. <laughs> I wish I knew how you reached your results, though. Well, in this case, my dear inspector, I, um, I reached them by sitting upon five pillows and consuming an ounce of shag tobacco. I only wish that... Uh, all my problems might be solved so comfortably. <laughs> well, Doctor, that was some story. <laughs> Imagine arresting a man for committing a murder and then finding out that he's the fellow who's supposed to be dead. <laughs> It's a bit bewildering, isn't it? You said it. Boy, being a detective sure has its surprises. Nothing like that ever happens to me. Oh, come, 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 come. One would believe to hear you talk that you lead a very uneventful life. Oh, but I do, Doctor, I do. Why, I never get any surprises. Look, I tell our friends that Petri wine is always good wine. And what happens? Oh, what does happen? Everybody agrees it's good wine, and that's that. Well, it's just got to be. After all, the Petri family has been making wine for generations. Winemaking is their heritage. A heritage passed on down from father to son, from father to son, from generation to generation. The Petri family knows full well the art of turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. And because the making of Petri wine is a family affair, you can be sure that the name Petri on a bottle of wine really stands for something. It's your assurance that every drop of wine in that bottle is good wine. No matter what type wine you prefer, you'll never go wrong with a Petri wine because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes adventure are you planning to tell us next week? Well, now let me see. Next week, um... Next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm... I'm going to tell you a, a weird story of violence and of sudden death that struck without warning. I call it the strange adventure of the uneasy, easy chair. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was adapted by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Man with the Twisted Lip. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The 
Country Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invite you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. Suspense, which is heard on Thursday nights at this hour, is taking its customary summer holiday. Suspense returns to the air eight weeks from now on Thursday, August 31st. Ladies and gentlemen, a $5,000 reward will be offered each week on the program immediately following this announcement. You out there, you who think you've committed the perfect crime, the perfect murder, that there are no clues, no witnesses, that your identity is unknown, listen. Somebody knows. Yes, you, wherever you may be, no matter where you're hiding, somewhere, sometime, someone listening to this program is going to bring you to justice. Yes. Somebody knows. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Somebody Knows, a program conceived in the public interest, dedicated to aiding the forces of law and order in the solution of this nation's unsolved crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to recreate for you tonight all the known facts in an actual unsolved murder. Somewhere, someone among you has had contact with the killer or killers. Someone whose identity need never be known has seen evidence or possesses information that can lead to the solution of this crime. In the public interest, the Columbia Broadcasting System offers a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer in this unsolved murder. We ask you then to please listen carefully, for you may be the one to win this reward. Somebody knows. It may be you. And now we open the files on one of this nation's unsolved murders. It's homicide file number DR-75-4613 of the Los Angeles, California Police Department. The unsolved murder of Mrs. Gladys Kern. It is St. Valentine's Day, Saturday, February 14, 1948. The time is between 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. The place, the exclusive Los Feliz residential section in the hills high above the city of Los Angeles, California. A real estate agent is showing a prospective buyer through a vacant home at 4217 Cromwell Avenue. Now, here's the dining room. As you can see, it's designed for good, homey, comfortable living and yet large enough to accommodate a good-sized dinner party. And this way is the kitchen. Now, maybe as a man, you aren't interested in what makes a kitchen practical. <laughs> but if you're like my husband, you're certainly interested in what comes out of it. So I'd just like to point out a few of... What's the matter? Why are you looking at me that... That knife? What are you doing with that knife? No, no, you can't. You... No! On Sunday morning, February 15th, 1948, a red light winks on a switchboard in the Los Angeles Police Department. Missing Persons Bureau. Hello? Is this where you report a, a missing person? That's right, sir. Well, my name is Jack Kern. It's my mother. She... Well, well ever since yesterday, we haven't any idea what happened to her. I see. What's your mother's name, Mr. Kern? Mrs. Gladys Kern. Mrs. Gladys Kern. Yes, sir. And the address? 6200 Roy Street in, in Highland Park. 6200 Roy Street, Highland Park. Now, if you give me a detailed description of her, the department you At about the same moment that Mrs. Gladys Kern is being reported missing, a sergeant enters an office in the homicide division. Something you might be interested in, Lieutenant. Oh? 
What is it, Sergeant? A note, anonymous. It was picked up in a mailbox at Fifth and Olive. Looks like it might be something for homicide. Has the crime lab seen it? Just got through with it. He said bring it down here. All right, let's see what it says. The note is written on a plain piece of paper folded over. On the outside, penciled in large, scrawling letters, are three words. Hurry to police. The body of the note, also printed in clumsy, penciled letters, is literary phrased, badly spelled, and unpunctuated. It says, I made acquaintance of man three weeks ago. He said he wanted to buy a home for his family, but he was a well, racketeer. No oh, real yes. estate who would do business with him. He suggested I buy a home for him in my name, and then he would go with me to look at the property to make sure he liked it. They went into the house, and I waited outside. After a while, I went up to investigate. She was laying on the floor. I turned her over. I was covered with blood. I pulled a knife out of her, and then I left and ran. I knew this man as Louis Fraser. He's about, about five foot ten, has jet black curly hair, wears blue or tan gabardine suits. He told me he was a fighter, and he looks it. I won't rest till I find him, because I know that man is my only alibi. alibi. Without Without him, him, I feel equally guilty. Hmm. What do you think, Lieutenant? A crank? I doubt it, Sergeant. I think this man has described an actual crime. Monday morning, February 16th, 1948, Mr. Fred Lyon, a realtor with offices at 2144 Hillhurst Avenue is showing homes to two women prospects, one of whom is Mrs. Verdi F. Cross, a trained nurse. One of the homes on his list is located at 4217 Cromwell Avenue in the Los Feliz Hills. At the moment, Mr. Lyon and the two women are looking over the grounds at the Cromwell Avenue address. And as you can see, ladies, the property's been well kept up. The owner's spared no pains to maintain his home in keeping with the section. Personally, I feel that at $25,000, the property's very sound value. The two women and Mr. Lyon now, leave the grounds and enter the service porch. They walk slowly toward the kitchen door. Then, as they're about to enter the kitchen... What is it? What's the matter, dear? There, on the kitchen floor. Look through that open door. Good Lord. Wait a minute. Stay here. Mrs. Verdi F. Cross, the nurse, walks a few feet into the kitchen... She stands there a moment, looking down, and then comes back to Mr. Lyon and the other woman. You needn't go any further. That woman is dead. A few minutes later, in the police communication division, a monitor on a police complaint switchboard plugs in to answer a call. Los Angeles Police Department, complaint division. You're certain the woman's dead? All right, what's the address? 4217 Cromwell Avenue. And your name? Mr. Fred Lyon. Who's with you, Mr. Lyon? Very well, sir. Go back to the house. Don't touch anything. You and the As two the women monitor the talks to Mr. Lyon over the telephone, he plugs in the homicide division switchboard on the same line. Simultaneously, he writes the pertinent information on a form, rips it from its pad, and places it on an endless chain conveyor belt that carries it into the next room. The next room is the broadcasting room of KGPL, official radio station of police communications. The dispatcher takes the slip and hands it to one of the seven broadcasters sitting fan-shaped around him. She looks it over quickly and presses a button on the microphone before her. Code 2, a dead body at 4217 Cromwell Avenue. Code 2, a dead body at 4217 Cromwell Avenue. Cars 301 and 115 acknowledge. Within a matter of minutes after the flash is given, Detective A.W. Hubka arrives on the scene. His official report, as given to the Homicide Division and later at the coroner's inquest, contains in part the following information. In response to the Code 2 broadcast, I proceeded at once to the home at 4217 Cromwell Avenue. In the kitchen, I found the body of an attractively dressed woman lying face down on the floor. My examination satisfied me that she was dead. There was a deep wound in her back between the shoulder blades. Obviously, a knife wound. In the kitchen sink, I found a leather-handled hunting knife with a blade of about uh, six inches in length. An attempt had been made to wash it clean, though some traces of blood stains still remained. Also in the sink was a man's balled-up handkerchief, which bore stains that I presumed to be blood. Beside the body lay an open purse and a wallet. Within a short time, a detail arrived from homicide. 
Shortly after the discovery of the murder, information is correlated between the Missing Persons Bureau and the Homicide Division. A police card speeds to Highland Park and picks up Mr. John E. Kern, husband of Mrs. Gladys Kern, reported missing the day before. It takes him to 4217 Cromwell Avenue. A police officer leads the tense, anxious man toward the kitchen. This way, please, Mr. Kern. The body is here in the kitchen. Gladys. Gladys. Dear God. It's my wife, Gladys. My wife. My wife. In just a moment, we'll continue with file number DR-75-4613 of the Los Angeles, California Police Department. The unsolved murder of Mrs. Gladys Kern. CBS invites you to hear another adventure in the far corners of the world with yours truly, Johnny Dollar, later tonight. Starring Hollywood actor Edmund O'Brien, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, brings you the adventures of a top investigator for a large insurance company. Old hands who think they have a new twist and new hands who think they have a novel twist try to swindle Johnny Dollar's company, and Johnny has to keep one step ahead. For action, thrills, and adventure in the far places, listen to yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Edmund O'Brien, every Thursday on most of these same CBS stations. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we'll continue with the rest of the factual information concerning the unsolved murder of Mrs. Gladys Kern. Remember, $5,000 reward will be paid for information leading to the arrest and conviction of her killer. With the establishment of the identity of the body at 4217 Cromwell Avenue as that of Mrs. Gladys Kern, all the resources of the Los Angeles, California Police Department swing into action in an effort to apprehend her killer. Detective Captain Burt Jones, Hollywood Division, is placed in charge of the investigation. The coroner's inquest is held at 1.30 p.m. Friday, February 21, 1948. Deputy Coroner Edwin Lennox is presiding. The first witness to be called is Mr. John E. Kern, the dead woman's husband. Now, Mr. Kern, we'll try to make this as brief as possible for you. Would you tell us, please, if you know of anyone who could possibly have any reason for doing harm to your wife? Uh, will you talk into that hand microphone, please, so that we can all hear you? Go right ahead, please. My wife had absolutely no enemies that I know of. There was no reason why anyone should want to kill her. I see. When was the last time you saw her, Mr. Kern? Last time I saw her alive was about 5.30 Saturday morning when I left for work. Would you please tell us, in your own words, all that you can remember of your wife's activities on that day? Well, Gladys was up before dawn to fix my breakfast. She always did. I see. She was a good wife. Go on, please. I left for work about 5.30, returned home about 4.30 that afternoon. Was your wife at home then, Mr. Kern? No, sir. She'd left a note for me. It was to remind me that we were going to a wedding. While waiting for his wife to return that night, Mr. Kern took a little nap. It was some time later that the doorbell rang. Uh, oh, the doorbell. It must be Gladys. Hi, Dad. Hello, Father. Oh, hello, kids. Come in. We've come to take you to the wedding, Dad. Where's Mom? Uh, Guess she's not home yet, Peggy. Oh, that's too bad. We thought we'd all go together. Well, you know how your mother is, Jack. She's got a client on the string. Oh, I know. She's liable to come home at all hours. Yeah, look, you two kids run along. I'll wait for her, and we'll show up later. All Still right. sweethearts, eh, Dad? <laughs> Can't move one step without the other. Well, I guess that's okay, this being St. Valentine's Day, but don't be late. This is going to be a night for the Kearns to howl. Yes, sir. Well, Mr. Kern, uh, what did you have to do after your children left? Well... I wasn't worried about Gladys, as I'd told the kids. She was very often kept late closing a deal, so mm -hmm. I lay down again. It was Sunday morning before I woke up. Mrs. Kern hadn't come home, of course. No, sir. I was really scared then. I 
called the kids right away and they hadn't heard from her either. Jack called the Missing Persons Bureau. We phoned everyone we could think of and, well, then we just waited, waited. Meanwhile, the reports on preliminary investigation in the case are discouraging. Detective Captain Jones has only this information to offer. Uh, <coughs> the uh, <coughs> murder weapon, the leather-handled K-bar hunting knife, is the type widely sold in war surplus stores. A check has been made of each such store in the city without any concrete results. We are also urging the anonymous letter writer through the radio and press to turn himself in, work with the police. Uh... No response has been forthcoming to date. Chemist Ray Pinker of the Police Crime Laboratory has this to report. Uh, Mrs. Kern's purse of a black plastic material would hold no fingerprints unless applied by uh, wet or blood-covered fingers. We found none. Nor were there any prints in the wallet or the murder weapon. The anonymous note had passed through too many hands to provide us with anything of value. Then, finally, comes the first break in the case. A witness is found who saw Mrs. Kern on that fateful Saturday in the company of a strange man. The witness, Mrs. Mary Johnson, manager of a drugstore at North Vermont and Fountain Avenues. Why, yes, yes, officer. I saw Mrs. Kern on St. Valentine's Day. She came in here real often. Her real estate office is only a few doors away. You know, at uh, uh, 1307 North Vermont. Well, it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'd say, that she came in. Oh, I was busy back here at the drug counter, so I didn't really pay much attention. But I did notice that there was a man with her. He was... What? Oh, no, no, I'd never seen him before. None of the others had either. They sat at the soda fountain and talked for a while, and then they left. That was the last time I ever saw poor Mrs. Kern. The man? Well, as near as I can recall, he was of medium build... He wore a, a dark blue suit. Yes, I remember now. He had very dark hair. Yes, very dark hair. Blue suit, very dark hair. What was it that anonymous note had said? I know this man is Louis Fraser. He's about five foot ten, has jet black curly hair. Wears a blue or tan gabardine suit. <laughs> Then, two weeks later in Long Beach, California, just a few miles away, another event takes place that finds its way into the file on Mrs. Gladys Kern. In a real estate office at 4591 Banner Street, Mrs. Jack Landis is sitting at her desk checking property listings when the door opens. Hello there. Hi. You, uh, you got any houses for sale? <laughs> Should say we have. What kind of a house were you looking for? Uh, I'm not particular. I am. Um, nobody else in the office? Not at the moment, no, but I have all the listings. If you could give me some idea of... Does this give you some idea, lady? That knife. Well, what are you doing with that knife? You just keep your mouth shut. I ain't gonna do nothing with it. If you don't, I'll... All right, now. Let me have that purse. Quick, now. Yes. Of course. Here. Okay. Now, you just sit there and keep that mouth shut. Yes. You better not do anything for five minutes. I'll come back and I'm going to take care of you. So long. Thank you. Oh. Oh, answer. Oh, please answer. Operator. Operator, get me the police. Hurry, get me the police. Now the pattern begins to grow clearer. Another real estate woman has been threatened and robbed by a prospective home buyer carrying a hunting knife. And now there's a more detailed description. A description that fits into the same general pattern that the police have been building. Attention all police officers. Wanted for questioning in the murder of Mrs. Gladys Kern, this man. Description follows. 23 to 26 years of age. Five feet seven to ten inches tall, handsome, has black wavy hair neatly combed, eyes dark brown, close set, smooth shaven, features sharp, has Midwestern accent, 
maybe dressed in blue gabardine slacks and a greenish-blue zipper jacket or a pinstripe suit, maybe driving a 1939 Chevrolet Coupe or a dark gray 1940 Dodge or Plymouth sedan. We'll repeat, wanted for questioning. Now the police receive two more important bits of information. The first comes from Mr. William Osborne, a physicist who maintains offices in the rear of Mrs. Kern's realty office on Vermont Avenue. At about uh, 4 o'clock the afternoon of Saturday, February 14th, I happened to notice Mrs. Kern go into a real estate office with a man. He was in his 50s, about uh, 6 feet tall, weighed probably 200 pounds. His hair was graying and his face was, well, I would say rather lean. He had a... New York appearance in his manner and his dress. He and Mrs. Kern were talking and joking, and they left shortly after they'd come in. I'd never seen the man before, and I never saw him again. The second bit of information, undoubtedly one of the most important clues in the entire case, came from Mrs. Peggy Ann Phillips, young married daughter of Mrs. Kern. When I was graduated from school, my brother Jack gave me a diamond wristwatch as a present. A short time before the day, before St. Valentine's Day, my mother took her watch to a jeweler for repair, and I gave her mine to wear meanwhile. She was wearing my watch on the day she was on St. Valentine's Day. When the police found her, the watch was gone. Oh, excuse me, please. My baby's crying. He, he loved his grandmother. Not, I'm sure he knows he, he's never going to see her again. Ladies and gentlemen, we've now given you all available information as contained in the files of the Los Angeles, California Police Department regarding the unsolved murder of Mrs. Gladys Kern. On the basis of that information, the coroner's jury said... We find the death of Mrs. Gladys Kern to be a homicide at the hands of person or persons unknown. Person or persons unknown? No. The killer of Mrs. Kern is not unknown. Somewhere in whatever town or city this man is hiding... Some one of you has seen him today, has spoken to him, eaten lunch and dinner with him, driven in the same car that he used on the day of the murder. No, the cold-blooded killer who took Mrs. Kern's life is not a person who is unknown. Somebody knows. Now listen carefully, please. Listen, all of you, wherever you may be. We're going to give you a recapitulation of all the known facts in the unsolved murder of Mrs. Gladys Kern. Better make a note of them. And remember, by following the instructions we shall give you in a moment, you may be the one to earn a $5,000 reward. Now here are the actual facts in the case. Mrs. Gladys Kern, 42 years of age, a realtor with offices at 1307 North Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles, California, was stabbed to death with a hunting knife in a vacant home at 4217 Cromwell Avenue in that city. The date, Saturday, St. Valentine's Day, February 14, 1948. The time, between 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. The motive was obviously robbery. Only a few pennies were found in a rifled purse. And a diamond-studded wristwatch she'd been wearing was missing. The police have descriptions of two men whom they're seeking as suspects in this crime. Here's a description of the first man. His age between 23 and 26, 5 feet 7 to 10 inches tall, handsome, wavy black hair, neatly combed, eyes, dark brown, close set, sharp features, smooth shaven, has a Midwestern accent. And please remember that this man seems to have a preference for blue or tan gabardine suits. Now here's the description of the second man seen with Mrs. Kern on the day of her death. Age, in his fifties, about six feet tall, weight, about 200 pounds, hair, turning gray, face, rather lean, has what is described as a New York appearance in his manner and dress. Now, the clue most likely to trap the man we're looking for is a diamond-studded wristwatch. Here's the description. Listen carefully, please. The watch is a boulevard. The case is yellow gold with a two-tone overlay of platinum. On each side, there are two or three diamond chips. 
The hands are black, spade type. The figures, Arabic on a white dial. The face opening of the watch is slightly oblong. And most important of all, on the back of the watch is this inscription. Peggy Ann, 6-1944. Let me repeat that, please. On the back of the watch is inscribed the name Peggy Ann, and the figures 6-1944. Ladies and gentlemen, if any of you possesses information that may have bearing on the unsolved murder of Mrs. Gladys Kern, please follow these instructions so that your name and identity need never be made known unless you wish. Now listen carefully. Write your information on a plain sheet of paper. Do not sign your name. Instead, sign it with six numbers, any arrangement of any six numbers. Then tear off a blank corner of that paper with a ragged edge. Write the same six numbers on that corner and keep it. Mail the rest of the paper with the information to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California. You need tell no one what you have done nor will you have to appear in person. If the information you've supplied leads to the arrest and conviction of the killer of Gladys Kern, we'll announce your signature number on this program. Then, if you don't want your name to be known, go to your lawyer or doctor, your priest, minister, or rabbi, and have him present the torn corner of the paper to any CBS station. In this way, you won't have to appear in person. If the torn corner matches the original paper containing the information, the $5,000 reward will be yours. Remember, you, wherever you are, you whose name need never be known, you may earn a reward of $5,000. Next week, at the same time, we'll present another true case history of unsolved murder. Homicide file number 78654 of the St. Paul, Minnesota Police Bureau. The unsolved murder of Mary Agnes Kabiska. You out there. You who have murdered in cold blood and think you've gotten away with it. Listen. You cannot escape. There is no perfect crime. Remember, you are not unknown. Somebody knows. Tonight's case was written by Sidney Marshall from information in the files of the Los Angeles, California Police Department. Research was by Maurice Zim. Music was composed and played by Milton Charles. Somebody Knows is a James L. Safier production in association with CBS by arrangement with the Chicago Sun-Times and is based on a copyright owned by W.L. Finstad. It was narrated and directed by Jack Johnstone. In order to be eligible for the reward, letters containing information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers of Mrs. Gladys Kern must be postmarked not later than midnight, July 26, 1950. Arrest of the guilty person or persons must occur within 90 days of that date and conviction must be within one year of tonight's broadcast. If more than one person gives the information leading to conviction, our judges will divide the $5,000 reward among them in proportion to the importance the judges attach to the facts supplied. And in this, the decision of our judges will be final. Until next Thursday at the same time, this is Frank Goss saying goodnight for... Somebody Knows! Excuse me, but have you met Ethelbert? Ethelbert is one of the constant joys of the CBS crime photographer shows. The others being the fast-paced action, the ingenious stories, and the trigger-quick thinking of Casey, the crime photographer himself. Stay tuned right now for Casey's latest adventure entitled Collision. This is CBS, where you hear Arthur Godfrey every weekday afternoon... The Columbia Broadcasting System.
That's Case Closed for this week. I hope you enjoyed our selections this time. You can find more from Sherlock Holmes, Case Closed, and thousands of other old-time radio episodes at relicradio.com. Got our shoutcast stream up and running there as well. And as always, if you would like to help support this and all of the shows, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. Your support makes all of this happen. Thanks to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. I'll be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed. Thank you.